The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we'll uh, begin with, uh, well, first, an informal welcome. We'll begin with a s- sitting. First, we'll do a silence for a while, and then I'll do a little guided meditation um, to kind of introduce the topic for our day. And then, and then after that, I'll do a more formal or fuller welcome and introduction to the day. So, so we'll start by sitting.
As we continue to sit, sit here, I'll offer you some guided meditation to lay a foundation for our work today. And begin by seeing if you can put your mind at ease. Let yourself be relaxed and at ease here. And then in a relaxed way, feel your whole body in whatever way your body shows itself to you. Feeling the weight of your body and how the weight of your body settles your body against your cushion or your chair, the floor. And and arising out of that base, the three-dimensional substantiality of your body moving up to your head torso, seeing if you can feel your body from the inside, what your body feels like in and of itself, how the body experiences itself. your ability to pay attention in a very calm, gentle way, easy way. Gently ease your awareness close to the experience of breathing. Very gently, kind of from a little distance or gently moving into the area where you experience breathing. You kind of almost like you sneak up on it and become aware of your body breathing in whatever way your body experiences the process of breathing. Be curious about how breathing is experienced now at different times. Breathing is experienced differently. Let yourself breathe as you are. As if awareness is a gentle observer, a gentle participant 
right along and feel the, how the body experiences breathing. And then as you're breathing, see if there's any easy places where you can soften, relax, let go of any holding connected to breathing. Not trying too hard, but perhaps at the end of the out-breath, Softening the belly. A wave of letting go through your rib cage and your shoulders. As you exhale, a, a slight letting go down your back, back rib cage, settling. Become aware of the fullness in your torso, your rib cage, at the top of the breathing in. Feel the stretching, the opening, the expansion in your body as you breathe in, gently. If you notice any holding in your body, tight shoulders, chest, belly, as you exhale, see if at the end of the exhale, there can be a slight release, letting go, or a softening. Gently feeling the rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. And if ever so slightly, if it's more comfortable to adjust that rhythm, see if you can adjust it. Maybe breathing in, in and out longer, shorter.
lingering as you breathe in slightly, so a little bit fuller breathing in, if that's comfortable and nice. See if you can allow the rhythm of your breathing to be more comfortable, enjoyable. And now to shift gears, take one of your fingers and press it into your body, your thigh or your knee. Just one fingertip pressing in. And as you press in there, bring your attention very carefully to that tip, the place of pressure and try to hold your attention there as closely and as you can. So not even for a millisecond does your attention leave the fingertip and the pressing. Really try to stay there and get into it and feel it really well. Really try to get to know it penetrate the sensations of pressure or contact that are there. And as you do that, has your breathing shifted any? Any way that your breathing has changed with that kind of more focused attention? And then you can relax and fingers and come back to the way where you were before, breathing in your body. in touch with your breathing, contact with it, aware of how it's like to breathe now. <clears throat> See if you can recall what it's like, how it's like to be breathing when you're angry. What happens to your breathing with your anger? You can even remember an angry situation like and see what happens to your breathing.
What's the physi- physiological effect on breathing when you get angry? And then see if you can remember now, take a deep breath and let go of that. And now see if you can remember some time when you felt deeply reassured, thoroughly reassured in a good way. And how did that deep reassurance affect your breathing? Everything's okay, you're safe, Things are going to work out. You don't have to make any more effort. Things are set. You can relax. To be reassured, how does that affect your breathing? So then, before we end the sitting, I have a question for you. You can contemplate. Maybe contemplate it staying in touch with your breathing. If you stayed closely attentive to your experience of breathing, cared for how it was like to breathe, nourished it, How do you think that would affect how you live your life? Would you make different choices about what to say and do in your life if you stayed very careful, attentive to what it's like to be breathing and how your breathing shifts and changes? And then to end this sitting, you can take a few, couple of deep breaths. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes.
So welcome to our Dharma practice day and the beginning of our Dharma practice series. For those of you who are new to these, um, we do these every year, usually starting this time of year, and we have a theme that goes through them until sometime in the spring. We meet on a monthly basis on a Friday and uh, we go through the theme, the practice theme. And this, this year, the theme is um, Uh, 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 mindfulness and ethics, the role of mindfulness, the place of mindfulness and part of ethical training or ethical consideration. Uh, uh, Having mindfulness help develop a greater ethical sensitivity in our lives. And um, I've been wanting to do a class like this for a long time and wondering how to do it and then about a month ago or so, it occurred to me I could do it here for these Dharma practice days. And a um, little bit I was inspired by the notion of um, kind of like the idea of a mindfulness-based ethics training. They have now mindfulness-based everything. But um, I didn't think I had to limit myself to that mindfulness-based brand. You know, it seems a little bit funny, you know, that, to have this much broader religious tradition of Buddhism that has so much to offer. And then out of it, some people have taken this mindfulness-based thing. And then as a Buddhist teacher, limit myself to that. <laughs> so I called it, I think it's called, you know, a, a Mindful Path to Ethics. Is that what it's called? What we came up with? And um, when I... Um, was first introduced to this practice in, in the Vipassana practice in Thailand. I did a 10-week ten, uh, ten retreat. It was kind of unexpected. I wasn't planning to meditate that long, but because I was waiting for my visa and it took so long for it to come or not come, I was just left at the monastery to do this long retreat. And one of the surprises of this long retreat, there were many that were kind of eye-opening for me, was that um, I noticed this inner shift and change in my uh, sense of inner feeling of being cleansed on the inside, clean on the inside. And this inner sense of being so clean or cleansed through this practice, uh, I saw it affected my ethics. And in particular, I, before I, just before I went on that retreat, um, I had lust for a woman, just regular old-fashioned lust people have, I suppose. And, um, and when I thought about this woman halfway into the retreat, in this kind of feeling of cleansed inner life, a cleansed being, um, I, I couldn't have any lust for her. I had some you know, appreciation of her and wishes to see her and, and nice feelings for her, but the lust was gone. It just didn't seem right in that feeling, that place. And I was so struck that this, and it made me happy to have this cleansed feeling and and I started, kept looking at this feeling I had on the inside. I could feel how, uh, how much uh, out of this feeling, I just naturally wanted to be very ethical. And it made me happy, this idea of being ethical. And the idea that being ethical would make you happy uh, was a foreign idea to me. And, you know, I wasn't particularly unethical in my life. Um, and, um, but if, I, if you asked me, I, you know, I, or by way I grew up in high school and stuff, that, I kind of just thought that people who were, you know, intentionally, explicitly ethical were kind of, 
I don't know what, I didn't have a good opinion of them. And, um, you know, just too good or something. And, um, but to have this, this thing being born inside, this feeling of cl- being cleansed or clean on the inside, uh, that was felt so remarkable, so, so um, compelling, uh, was a big eye-opening to me about the role of ethics in life and in Buddhist practice and what Buddhist training and practice can be about. And then how we live our lives coming out of that. So, uh, and what happened, you know, it was clearly a case where my ethical sensitivity, sensibility, did not come from the outside as a set of rules or obligations um, or what people expected of me, but arose from the inside as I was being changed by the practice I was doing, as the mindfulness became stronger. And it didn't become an obligation, it became an inspiration, something that kind of how I wanted to be. It was just like, of course, this made sense. And um, so this idea of mindfulness-based ethics training uh, has to do with not uh, rule-based ethics training, like how do, we fi- how do we figure out what the rule is and how we're supposed to live by the rule, but rather how the rule, if you use that word, can arise naturally out of from the inside of us as we develop uh, a, a deeper sensitivity, a greater, greater, capacity, a greater capacity for empathy, greater capacity of mindfulness, greater cleanse, a, a, a cleaning from the inside, a cleanse, cleanse, purification on the inside. Um, and so it comes out of us as something that, of course, we want to do this. It's not a question of, uh, of should we or shouldn't we be ethical, just kind of what comes. So that's the uh, kind of general topic. The, for those of you who are new, these Dharma practice days are done um, uh, with a little bit the idea that uh, replicating the experience of living in a monastery in that in the monastery, people who practice there uh, don't spend the day in silence, don't spend a day just meditating alone, and, uh, but rather spend a lot of time in community where they have a chance to talk about the Dharma practice, what they're doing in practice. The, t- the teacher of the monastery gives a talk and then people have a chance soon thereafter to, you know, what do you think of that? And, and uh, this is my experience of that or whatever. And a lot of the learning in a classic uh, monastery uh, happens between peers practicing together, exploring the Dharma, rather than, you know, from the teacher who sits up high and dispenses the wisdom. Um, and so uh, in that spirit, for this, uh, these kinds of Dharma practice days, uh, the amount of teaching I do will be relatively little, um, but hopefully just enough to get you into the topic, into the subject, get you involved. And then uh, and there'll be some guided meditation, some exercises. But a fair amount of it will also be you guys having a chance to discuss it among yourselves. So uh, sometimes to break into pairs, sometimes little groups, sometimes larger groups. Uh, sometimes the, the discussion will be kind of following a particular format uh, that um, allows for some deeper or practice in the middle of the discussion, not just kind of a free, free open discussion, but kind of focused in a particular way. And sometimes it'll be more open. Sometimes we'll have discussion here as a group as a whole. So a variety of different ways. It'll shift and change. And one of the uh, hopes of this kind of, some of the hopes of this kind of day, Dharma practice days, is that you'll have some chance to practice and meditate. You'll have some chance to develop community. And you'll have some chance to explore, deepen your connection to the, the practice teachings of the day. Um, I do believe that when you, people have a chance to speak themselves about a topic, 
they hear and discover what they think and what they believe and how they understand it, and they get feedback and they, they learn from other people who have the same chance, and that um, we learn a lot better. Even though I know I think some people feel they learn best if they just get the book and be told, um, or someone just gives a talk. But the personal engagement in the material <laughs> is sometimes quite surprising how we learn about ourselves in the process. So that's kind of the general idea of uh, these kinds of Dharma practice days. Uh, the way it's going to be organized for this year is around what's called the Ten Skillful Actions. Many people, especially lay people in our tradition, when they think about ethics, maybe will first and foremost think about the five precepts, called the, sometimes called the five lay precepts, of not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to engage in sexual misconduct, and not to um, intoxicate oneself. And um, so those are great. But there's another list called the Ten Skillful Actions that um, are in some ways are much more comprehensive. And it's, uh, it's the one the Buddha taught much more often to people than the five precepts. Uh, there's actually a very, very little uh, evidence that survives. The Buddha taught, the f- gave instructions or prescriptions to people to follow the five precepts. The few times when he did, uh, it was mostly things like, you know, you'll have a better marriage if you do that. Um, and, you know, kind of practical worldly reasons. Uh, more often when he was focusing on uh, uh, spiritual practice, you know, the path of liberation, uh, he prescribed what these ten skillful actions. And these ten skillful actions are, uh, d- are divided into three groups, um, three things having to do with your body, with behavior, four having to do with uh, your speech, and three having to do with your inner... Um, attitude, your, your mind, what you do with your mind, so body, speech, and mind. And the mind part is much more com- comprehensive because it, it has to do with the attitudes or the, the motivations underneath uh, and beliefs underneath uh, your actions and your speech. So the, the three having to do with action are uh, not, not to kill, not to take what's not given, and not to um, uh, be involved in sexual misconduct. The four having to do with uh, speech uh, have to, are not to lie, not to be involved in malicious uh, speech, not to be involved in harsh speech, and not to involve in trivial, trifling, draining speech. And then uh, the, three ha- the three having to do with um, the mind are uh, not to be greedy, uh, not to have a greedy mind, and not to have a mind of ill will. And then the last one is to have right view. So your belief, the orientation, the perspective by which you're going to live your life is important to care for. And to, so there's certain perspectives that are more useful for how do you live, a lot, your, live your life and other perspectives which are not useful. So, so to care for that and have one that's... The word right here is probably best translated as um, the... the, the um, in the sense of, of the right tool for the job. So the right tool, the right perspective for the job of liberation and spiritual growth. So we'll go through these 10 over the course of the year. And uh, so because there's 10, and I don't think we have 10 meetings, we'll, we'll combine a few. Maybe the speech ones can, can be combined because there's four of them. Um, and I'll try to have some handouts every time. Um, we'll see how I do with that. Some quotes uh, about this topic of, you know, from the suttas and maybe an article or so 
that I write. So that's a general idea. So how's that sound? Okay, I'm very gratified that so many people came for this topic. Um, a few weeks ago on Monday night, I asked how many people would come to a you know, mindfulness-based ethics training. And I asked the question, assuming, and to make a point, assuming that no one would raise their hand, or one person would, and, and, um, and that kind of you know, silly me, right, thinking, having those thoughts. And to my surprise, a large group of people raised their hands. So that was encouraging. I thought that this is an area that interests people. So I'm gratified that you came to, to this topic. And I hope that in the course of this year, if you come, or at least today, that you'll see that, uh, that training and ethics is closely connected, can be closely connected to mindfulness practice itself. And they can come out of a certain kind of approach to mindfulness that uh, is beneficial for you and beneficial for others. It's part of spiritual development in Buddhism. So any general questions about what we're doing today or you know about this topic and the series? That's, that's clear enough? I think many of you have been to these series before, kind of know what's in store. Um, the, um, so now I want to so then, and if you're not going to speak, then I'll ask you something. And then we'll, ta- we'll take about another 10 minutes here and then we'll take a break for your bladders. The, um, so this exercise we did this uh, on the breathing. Um, I don't know how it was for you, but my, kind of my hope was that you would somehow relax and have somewhat easy, natural breath. And that uh, by focusing really tight on your fingertip, that you would notice that your breath kind of locked up a little bit in order to do that. Did anybody notice that? Is that uh, some of you and most of you didn't? Most of you just stayed relaxed. And so some of you did. Um, the, way I, the way I first learned this kind of exercise was someone had us do it with the eyes open and had us stare at a spot on the floor in front of us. And, um, and maybe it's, maybe it's uh, more, more uh, likely to happen when you use your eyes to kind of focus on something in your finger. And, um, and most of the people then found that their, their breathing kind of locked up and tightened up. And um, did any of you, I'm sorry if I did this on you, but did anybody, any of you notice that your, your memory of what your breath is like or that there, there, you could see there's a connection between how you breathe and anger? A few of you, and most of you never get angry. <laughs> and, uh, and how about the, when we switch to being reassured? Did you, that, that also have effect on your breathing? So then, the question for you is, what, what did you think about? What came up for you when I asked you, if you use your breathing as a reference point, if you stay close to connection with your breathing, how do you think that would uh, affect the choices you make about how you live and what you do? So could that be nice if maybe we can have the mic and some of you can answer that question. What came up for you? Nothing came up. It's risky if you don't uh, speak up. Yes? Can, is this on? So, I'm not sure this is the answer you want, but I was saying, well, I, I don't really need the breath 
to let me know I'm angry. And I'd, I had a very difficult morning getting here, and I dealt with it not very skillfully. Yeah. And so I was really angry in the car all the way over and sort of very aware of pounding in my head, my blood pressure, and my breathing and such. Um, but none of that awareness particularly got me to dealing skillfully with all the trivial little things that had set it off. Or, um, so actually, I mean, when I got in here, it was very good to be able to sit and sort of breathe and sort of think a little bit or be aware of sort of what I'd been through and the meaninglessness of it all. But I'm not at a space yet where just being aware of how angry I am and how it makes me deal with it much better. Mm. So I'm sort of maybe halfway along the path you're okay. talking about. But Okay, well, let's, let's see how it goes here, the discussion about the connection between breathing and how people might want to live their lives. It might be interesting to hear. And then we'll come back to you. It might be nice if you say your name. So what's your name? Michael. Michael. Arthur. Um, my two, two, two thoughts, um, or two, two reactions to it. One is, um, if I was aware of my breath as I were going about my day, I'd know, I'd know from how I was breathing what was going on inside. Uh, I'd know if I were happy, angry, sad, etc. Because my breath—I I know my breath changes. And the other half of that is, if I were um, able to be aware of my breath all day, um, I'd be aware of what was going on in my life all day, um, and I wouldn't. Uh, disappear for many hours, <laughs> whole days at a time. And you tend to make good or bad decisions when you disappear? Who knows? I'm not you, there. <laughs> I see. So, sounds like it's not too bad then because you, you, don't, have to, you, don't, have, you don't get to uh, deal with the repercussions afterwards? I do deal with the repercussions and afterwards, it, but it's just one more piece of... Um, uh, uh, not really knowing what I'm dealing with uh, when I'm that way. Yeah, but, but, but what's the evidence afterwards when you look back? Oh, well, there's lots of debris. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the path is strewn with bits and pieces of things, yeah. Um, and, and it's obvious f- from, from the collateral damage what's, <laughs> what I, what's been going on. Great, thank you. Arthur, you can move the mic to Judy, and you can, you can, no, you can pass it to her. I'm Judy. I think it would affect my life a lot if I were aware of my breathing. And my first objection was, well, what about in conversation? If I'm listening to somebody and if I'm talking, how can I possibly know where my breath was? And then I remembered that during... That said this morning, I was uh, reforming my niece's schedule in her life. And I thought, well, she's not here. And then I said, well, maybe I need to reform the schedule in my life, which is an issue for me now. And I thought, okay. But I think 
mindfulness of the breathing would bring me back to that a lot faster mm-hmm. because for me it would be paying attention to here and now. Great, thank you. Hi, my name is Candy, and I think I responded by thinking that being aware of my breath allows me to make choices, that if I'm conscious, I can make choices, and if I'm not, then I don't have the choice of what I want to do, so I, I think that was my reaction, the word choice. So by, by staying connected to your breath, you're, more, you're in the present moment in a way that gives you the space to notice what's happening and see the choice. Yeah, thank you. I'm Ellen. Uh, I think I do this backwards. Um, Somebody here, you or someone else, once said, um, what are you willing to give up your breath for? So when I'm in the middle of having some kind of snit, um, I will then ask myself the question, am I willing to uh, give up Does it get, but does it get you out of the snit more yeah. quickly? Yeah, I mean, I, then I can have like a discussion about with myself, maybe in my head. Is there, is there then a, a debate to whether, is it, yeah, put, if you hold it vertically, it's a little bit. Is it, yeah, is it, is it, is there a debate inside where you evaluate whether it's, is it really worth staying s- s- yeah. snitty? Yes, I do, yeah. And so, sometimes clearly snitty is better than the calm breath. But, uh, but, some, some, but sometimes it's clear that the pleasant breathing is more, is, is, has a value. More often I do opt for the pleasant breathing, but not 100, 100% of the time. Great. Um, I have been aware of my breathing and, and, and have been involved with passions. Um, and, and that's not enough to get me out of those passions. Um, so, so um, I think for for certain habits or uh, tendencies, for me, there has to be deeper work than just being aware of the uh, the breathing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, um, I mean, this is not particularly harmful, but I can be aware of my breathing watching a football game and become very you know excited about watching this game and. And uh, someone might think there's something really wrong with that, but I don't. That doesn't have to be, no. Yeah. There's all kinds of ways. But it, it also could be anger. You know, I could be, like on a retreat, can, there, you know, some, some deep passions could arise, and the breathing isn't enough. It takes more to, uh, to relieve that. Depends. I think it probably depends how strong the anger is. But yeah. There might be a, a, cer- a certain degree of weakness where you, you're staying in touch with your breath, uh, where, you know, you feel the anger coming up, and you say this, you know, you can feel it's beginning, that your breath begins to shift, and you say, this, I, I don't think I need to go there. Is, is that something you can imagine? Depends on how deep the anger is. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Sometimes the gods need to come in and intervene. The what? <laughs> Sometimes the gods need to intervene. <laughs> the... Um, so the idea here is that there are, uh, uh, 
there is um, uh, sources of knowledge, of understanding of how we are uh, in our body, in our, our level of comfort or ease or, or being at home in ourselves, that can be a uh, reference point for what's important for us. So uh, uh, if, um, and it probably it happens pretty naturally that uh, sometimes we get tense around something. It could be that we're holding, we're really excited by something. We're holding excited by the football game and, and we're holding the remote really tensely. And maybe it, we do it for like 15 minutes until finally it starts hurting. So I don't have to do this. I can still enjoy the game without gripping that remote. And so you, we release the hand. So it's not, an eth- it's, not, it's not like a moralistic thing, thou shalt release the remote. But it just it comes from this inner sensitivity that it feels better not to be so gripping, it doesn't hurt as much. So what, I, what I'd like to offer you is that the reason why uh, you know, this mindful, mindfulness approach to um, ethics is that we're using mindfulness to get reference points uh, within us for how we want to behave, how we live our lives that uh, that's, could be seen as being ethical, make ethical choices. But they, they, those choices come from the inside rather than from the consideration, evaluation of the situation in more traditional uh, moralistic terms or in Buddhist terms. Um, it isn't kind of thing, knowing about the five precepts and then, th- and then mentally evaluating, well, this is going to violate this precept. I am not supposed to do this. I'm going to be a good Buddhist and let me not do this thing. That certainly can be useful at times, but uh, the mindful approach to ethics would be to cultivate and strengthen an inner sensitivity where just as you would uh, pull away from stepping on a nail, you would pull away from lying to your best friend or pull away from uh, killing your best friend or you know, a variety of things that, you know, you, you know oh, I, I don't want to do that. Um, so in that heightened, so mindfulness brings us heightened sensitivity. And so the example of the breathing is that when you're connected to your breathing, you, you have access to, you're sensitive to information that you wouldn't be if you were disconnected to your breath. And that uh, at times, that information about how you're breathing is meaningful enough that you want to not lose the comfortable breath. You don't want to get all tight and choked up. Um, uh, around your breathing. The word anxiety, by the way, apparently in, La- in Latin or Greek comes from the word choking up. So, uh, you, know, you know, the idea, so would you want to give up the easeful breath, the relaxed breath? And sometimes it's clear that you'd, this is a nice resource, it's a nice way of being to be relaxed. And that becomes a decision maker for us and helps us. In the same way, we can have heightened sensitivity to our body, not just to our breathing and can notice that we were tense and we were hot and we were, or notice we were soft and relaxed and a nice, refreshing feeling. And we can use these feelings as a, uh, not, not as a universal source of ethics, but as a very important source of helping us decide and finding our way. Sometimes a decision has to do with ourselves. <clears throat> uh, I don't want to mess up my good feeling, you know, I don't want to mess up feelings in this way. Um, but sometimes it has to do with the heightened compassion or empathy that comes. I think most people will find that when, when their breathing is easeful and relaxed, their capacity for empathy for others is heightened. And so, um, 
And when they're all tight and choked up, that probably there's less empathy, less room for it. And so uh, at the same time as being more sensitive to yourself and the consequences on yourself your, that your actions will have, so you're more sensitive to others and probably take their situation into better account as well out of compassion. So the mindfulness, training and mindfulness is, to, uh, is even without wanting to, is a training in a, a higher ethical sensitivity. And what we'll be doing this year is looking at this connection between mindfulness and the cultivation of mindfulness and ethics. And, um, and uh, we'll look at uh, particular issues. We'll go through and look at you know, these 10 skillful actions. Today we're going to look at more deeply, I think mostly in the afternoon, we'll look at um, not killing. And then, um, which is the first both precept and the first so the skillful actions. And then we'll also, uh, I had this idea that we would look at some issue, um, bigger issue that is connected to these, to these ethical uh, guidelines. And so, for example, with not killing, uh, there's a number of interesting issues, uh, larger issues that we could look at. Uh, it could be looking at the issue of vegetarianism. Some people find that interesting. We could look at issues at euthanasia, we, of suicide, of abortion. So I don't know which of those you have the most use for, but uh, I thought maybe in the last section of the afternoon we can actually look at these issues and try to look at them uh, and uh, kind of approach them and, and analyze them or consider them um, um, uh, you know, from this point of view of a mindfulness-based approach to ethics. Make some sense? So that's the general idea. Um, and, um, and I think generally these, these uh, Dharma practice days, for going from 9.30 to 3.30, we have five blocks of time. Um, four, blocks is, four blocks for sessions, a block, kind of a session, a break, a session, and then a lunch for an hour. And then a uh, session, a break, and a session ending at 3.30. That's how I'm kind of thinking of it. And, um, and it'd be nice if you, you don't have to, you can do whatever you want for lunch, but if you bring a lunch here, lunch, we, in these days we uh, talk with each other. So in terms of uh, having opportunity to cultivate community and, you know, uh, companions that you know on the path of practice, this is a nice place to develop that if you stay for lunch here. Okay, so let's take a, um, let's start again in here at 10 to 11. Almost 20, 20, 15 minutes, a little bit more than 15 minutes for a break. And if you're new, new here, there's bathrooms in the back of the building over there. And help yourself to tea too if you want in the back.
So, um, the topic, theme of ethics is um, a fascinating topic. It's fascinating because, of, partly because of all the different relationships people have. Some people, um, you know, love the idea of being ethical. Some people are troubled by the idea of being ethical. Some people abhor the idea of being ethical. It just, uh, you know, being ethical is just like, you know, uh, someone else is putting limitations on me and how I should behave. And I don't want to have any limitations. I just want to do whatever I want to do and not be limited. Uh, or if I start being ethical, then someone's going to tell me what to do. Like this week is Earth Care Week. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm not going to kill my neighbor. That makes sense. I like to be ethical. But, uh, you know, where does the the boundaries of our behavior and the killing of life uh, begin and end. And so he said, well, you know, if you eat animals, you're somehow indirectly involved with killing animals. And then, well, these people are just too ethical. You know, leave me alone. I want to eat my meat. Um, it goes on from there. So there, people can have a complicated relationship with ethics, the idea of ethics, just hearing about it because of their background and different ideas with it. Um, the um, ethics is uh, uh, ethical issues are have a, regardless of what people's individual I- idea when they hear the word ethics, you have to be ethical or something. Whatever, regardless of their own kind of personal connection to it, um, ethics, ethical issues, is what makes literature and TV and movies and the news the most interesting. <laughs> I mean, there, you know, imagine if, if all the characters in Shakespeare or in movies or in books were, comp- you know, and Ellen writes, you know, you write mystery novels, right? Detective novels, right? So one. So, so someone was probably unethical in your book, right? <laughs> well, my protagonist struggles with doing the right thing, which is often not clear okay. to her. So, so it sounds like Maybe it wasn't a, uh, a murder mystery then. But anyway, point being, what I'm trying to make is that, is that uh, sex, money, drugs, you know, these are really make for fascinating dramas. And they get very interested. And, you know, and when someone does something fascinating in the ethical world, then neighbors talk about it, friends talk about it, it becomes, you know, it's juicy. Um, maybe not for all of you, but, but you, don't, you know, you just probably go look at, just look at how many mysteries get sold, mystery books get sold, and, you know, there's usually someone gets killed. Well, mysteries are morality plays, in a way. In a way, Yeah. My, my son, when he was 12, loved watching Monk, Adrian Monk, you know, and there's always some, someone's doing something unethical, and that's what makes it interesting. So it's an interesting area of life, this whole area of ethics. And each of you will have your own relationship to the word ethics, to the idea of ethics, to what is ethical, what isn't ethical. You'll have, uh, uh, you were probably taught some relationship to it as children growing up. Uh, sometimes it was very moralistic and puritanical, and that was imbued in early. Sometimes it was very permissive, and 
um, uh, kind of a dismissal of ethics and people did whatever they want. People who've had parents who were, uh, I've known people whose parents were criminals or involved in criminal activity and and they learned that growing up, this is how you get along in the world, by cheating and stealing and selling drugs and things. Uh, so we have our, you know, what, you know, the influences that formed us as we grew up, and then we have our experiences in our life that, uh, that affect how we relate to the ethical world and our behavior, to some of the difficult ethical issues. And then we have our religious tradition that teaches us something. And then we have a Buddhist religious tradition which teaches certain things about ethics. And then, uh, but I think that the deeper kind of thing that I want to emphasize in this course is uh, we have our own hearts, our own ability for ethical sensitivity. And uh, what, con- what kind of relationship do we have with ethics when the source of ethics comes from our own hearts rather than from a religious tradition, from parents, from society? And do we see ourselves as a repository, as a, as a reference for ethical behavior? There are people who feel that the individual is not to be trusted. And that's why you need to have very strong rules in place because that protects the individual and protects society from an ethical behavior because people are basically bad. And so you need this. Or if the attitude is that people are basically good, innately good, then there's a whole different understanding of where the source of ethics comes from. Um, So, uh, do you trust yourself? Do you trust other people? Or do you want to have rules in place? If you trust people, you know, what do you trust in them? The kind of the premise behind this course is that there is something trustable in ourselves. Um, if If we tune into ourselves, if we learn to be mindful in a strong way, that there's something trustable that can come out of us they can guide us and support us in living an ethical life, which in Buddhism is defined in a particular way. And this is very important to get the definition right, if you understand what Buddhism does. Otherwise, it's, it can slide really quickly into puritanical, rule-based kind of approach. And the, de- the primary concern, or the only concern, uh, in, uh, in Buddhism is uh, uh, avoiding causing harm. So, to be unethical is to cause harm. To be ethical is to avoid causing harm. Even better, to do what's beneficial for people. And so, when harm and benefit are the measurement for ethics, that saves us from a lot of the headaches that can come when it's rule-based. So a rule-based approach would be, for example, to say that um, gay marriage is wrong. Gay behavior is wrong because you sh- only a certain way of using your sexual organs are okay. And, um, and so, you know, that's kind of a categorical statement. But if you, rather than to come with a rule and look at sexual behavior by what causes harm to the individuals who do it, then you get a different evaluation. And then... You know, it's hopefully easy to imagine that uh, someone can be, uh, you know, a variety of different sexual orientations and no harm is being caused. And in fact, the harm that's being caused is by people who limit them and say, you're bad. That's where harm is being caused. And so there's a different evaluation that comes from the question of harm and not harm. 
So is that an orientation towards ethics that you have? Do you understand that? Or do you come to the question of ethics with a different uh, set of values and beliefs or orientations? Have you somehow unconsciously imbued yourself, been imbued with uh, puritanical rule-based things, which are so easy to kind of get conditioned deeply into that from our culture, from our religion, from our family. So what is your relationship to this topic of ethics? That's, that's the question for the session here. And um, is this, uh, did I kind of lay it out? Uh, no, what did I, what, I didn't lay it out at all. Well, oh, no, <laughs> I, I wanted to add an extra something. Yes, please. Yes. I know you're not fond of uh, ex- extreme examples, but I, you know, I think context. I might, I might not be fond, but I'm delighted when I hear them. Oh, okay. <laughs> so context. Yes. Is not a word that you used. Um, so when the, you know, the SS comes knocking on my door and says, "You have any Jews in this place?" You know, I'm going to lie. Right. Um, and a, then as a, as a policy. No, in that in that context and that circumstance. So, but, but and as a policy, when the SS come, you'll always lie. No, I'm talking about that particular instance. There, in response to that particular question, um, I hadn't thought about the what other circumstances might arise. Um, okay, period. New paragraph. Um, he always tells me I don't tell people when I'm changing the subject. Uh, so the, the other issue is what's going on now in, is it Sri Lanka, where the Buddhists are killing all the Muslims? Myanmar. Myanmar in Myanmar. Burma, Myanmar. right. Myanmar. And I don't understand that. And I wonder if you might... Do you understand if you have elsewhere? Any, well, these are, pe- these are people who are supposed to be uh, practicing Buddhists. Pract- I don't know if anybody said they're practicing Buddhists. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just wondered. Buddhists, the Buddhists are just like anybody else in the world, right? They're people. And they're people killing each other all over for ethnic reasons and religious reasons. And I think it's kind of, I mean, it's terrible that the Buddhists are doing this. Uh, but I, I kind of think it's a little bit of a... I don't know how to say this in any way that comes across right. Um, I think it's actually um, seeing this Buddhist do it frees us <clears throat> from thinking Buddhists are a special category and that somehow we're immune to this and we're better than everybody else. <clears throat> I think it's probably it's more maturing and more realistic for us to see that we're all in it together. We have to find our way together as a human human you know, humanity, and that here we are, you know, the Buddhists, even the Buddhists do it, the roots for violence and the roots, roots for prejudice and for um, ethnic hatred and all that run pretty deep in our society. And so I, I think simply just offering Buddhism <clears throat> as a solution is not going to be enough. We have to understand things in a deeper way of what's going on. Well, that helps, thanks. But context is very important. Um, and um, but even with uh, with shifting contexts, um, uh, knowing what's in our hearts makes a big difference. So that's what the mindfulness part is: really understanding ourselves well, because uh, sometimes the context can be understood, 
But there's a different evaluation that happens, different understanding when we have it in ourselves, comes out of ourselves. Somebody, yeah. I can't remember his name, has recently written a book about uh, combat-related PTSD as a, um, a kind of a, a moral pain. I can imagine. Yeah. <clears throat> the, um, so the, the topic I'd like you to discuss with one other person is what is your relationship to ethics? And the way I laid it out before was, uh, hopefully, was quite broadly all kinds of issues. You know, your, 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 you know, growing up. What was the, what did you learn about ethics? Your religious influences on it, your gut feelings about it, uh, what you've learned in, in the course of your adult life. What is your, you know, when you hear ethics, you know, what's your general, what's your first thoughts, your reactions to it? Uh, what's your second reaction? What's the third? You know, what's your relationship to it? Are you it just makes you happy? Are you burdened by it? You're troubled by it? You're struggling with it? You're here because you, you're here because, you know, what, you know, because you like the idea of ethics. It's just like you know, nice way to spend a relaxing Friday. <laughs> or, um, or you have some intuition that this is really important area of practice for you. And so there's a, there's a wide variety of ways that you could respond to the question: What is your relationship to ethics? This topic of ethics. And what I'd like you to do is to meet with another person and share that with one other person, partly so you can hear yourself as you, as you speak about it. So even if you, it's, it's, there's a very different thing happens when you hear yourself having thoughts and sometimes when you say it out loud. Sometimes you hear yourself in a very different way when you hear, say it out loud. And, um, and, uh, and then you might actually start exploring new things that you wouldn't have thought about before in the conversation. Um, now, the whole topic of ethics could be, uh, could be connected to deeply personal, private areas of your life. So you don't have to share things you don't want to share. You just want to share the things you're comfortable with here. Um, but, um, and so the idea here for this way of doing this is start by pairing up with one other person. And I don't know if we're odd and even, but if, there's any, if you don't find a, a partner, walk towards the front towards me. And uh, that does a number of things. One that does is that um, you might run into someone else who's looking for someone. And, uh, and then if we end up with one extra person, I will help uh, make a group of three out of that for you. So find another person. And, um, and then the way to have the conversation, because sometimes we structure these conversations, is, um, <clears throat> is uh, don't tell this long story that you know the story really well because the purpose of these conversations are not to give information to your partner but rather for you to be able to explore something. The, the main person you're ben- benefiting from this and you're talking about your relationship to ethics is yourself. So it's a different kind of conversation where a conversation where you're informing someone else. The other person is more like a witness for yourself as you explore. And so when you speak when it's your turn to speak, uh, it's probably not so useful for you to tell a long story because you know the story really well. So kind of to, to, you know, get to the point kind of quickly, unless you feel it's really important to explore the story. But um, make basically one point about your relationship to ethics. And then, um, because you could, it could be many different angles and perspectives, just kind of make one point and then let the other person offer a point from their life, what their relationship to ethics is. 
and then go back to you. So to go back and forth. So it's a relatively short period of time back and forth, maybe a minute each, per, each person speaks back and forth. It's kind of... And what happens with it, doing it this way is that when you hear the other person speak, don't respond to them. Don't, don't uh, you know, give them advice or don't, you know, um, say something about them more than just maybe ask a simple question to clarification. But um, when you hear them, that's going to spark something in you, a new way of seeing it, new understanding. It might, and then that might, you might say something different than you would have been if you were on your own talking about it. And then uh, it goes back and forth, and you're both going to be affected by what the other person uh, says. And new areas will op- might open up for you about your relationship to the topic of ethics. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Seems good. Okay, so if you could uh, pair up with someone and you can start your conversation. We'll, we'll take some, some, something about 10, 10 to 15 minutes, depending how it goes here. I noticed that my perspectives were much more flowing. So I may have had one idea about something, and all of a sudden I was seeing it from a different perspective, and that there was a real flow to that, constantly moving. Great. Thank you. Uh, I also noticed that it's, it was a little bit like uh, just restarting with the breath, right? So, because I, I noticed that I, if I go on for too long, at some point I just kind of forget that I'm there and it's just I'm yabbering, yabbering, yabbering. And there was something nice about just resetting and resetting and I felt I could practice more empathy and more just being aware of who I was speaking to. Mm, nice, thank you. Straight back. I um, I found it really helpful. Um, one thing that was good is that um, it it suited my personality. Like I like to say a little bit and then see what the other person says and and then help me listen better because I know the person isn't going to go on a long time and get involved in the story <laughs> and um, that it so I could really focus and then also while I'm listening to the other person something comes up for me and I know I don't have to wait very long so I can be patient I can stay with the other person. So it, it was really perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's very nice, thank you. Um, so because of different views, very different views in some ways, um, uh, it gave rise to a lot of questions that I didn't have before. Mm, the process, yeah. good. That's nice. Great, thank you. So, now I'd like to ask you to uh, take your pair, the two of you, and join another pair. And, um, and if there's, uh, again, if it doesn't work out numbers-wise that way, why don't the, the pair that doesn't match up with another pair easily walk towards the front of the room and I'll help with that. And now the topic is uh, for you as a group to go around the circle and uh, somewhat the same way, where each person says something relatively short, uh, 
Um, I mean, you don't you don't have to feel hurried or feel like you have to kind of, in some some limiting way, be concise. But you know, something in you know in the shorter range of things, and offer your perspective on what you think um, the connection a, can, a connection can be between mindfulness and ethics, between ethics and mindfulness, and uh, share, share share some thought, and then go around. And um, and the same thing hopefully will happen that you'll be some be influenced by some of the other peop- things you hear and that'll give you new ideas prompt new understanding new perspectives and um, and so you go around this way around and um, any questions about that that is that clear enough. So now, um, for my sake, and also for the sake of the other groups and pairs that you know didn't hear what your conversation was like, um, what was this like? Both these exercises, in terms of what you talked about and what you came to, and anything you want to share about this? So this didn't come up, it, it didn't get said, it came up in my mind and I was about to say it, um, but it, uh, something about the group and gave rise to it. I was sitting, not sitting, I was driving in, uh, in Los Altos Hills yesterday around rush, rush hour and there was a, a four-way stop sign and I was just struck, like in my tracks, how I, I, I how every car was waiting for the next car mm. before they went. And I thought about an intersection I was at in India and another one <laughs> in, in, in Italy. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I don't need to say, but, you know, whoever could, the most aggressive went first. Um, and uh, our, in, in the course of our conversation, uh, I was thinking how um, have so many backgrounds, so many, uh, each of us had a different perspective on things and how we all come together with such different views on the world and um, how we manage to live together. Great, thank you. The issue of the comparison of, you know, people taking turns at a stop sign in Los Altos and in some places in the world where it's no taking turns, it's, you know, it's, uh, people, everyone's rushing ahead and forcing their way in, so it looks like to us maybe. The, um, both require attention. You could argue that uh, there's less attention is needed in Los Altos because you just wait your turn and you go and save. But in the chaos of India and everyone's going left and right and around about and forcing their way in, I mean, you have to be really on your toes to kind of be, you know, it requires more mindfulness, right? But, but, um, but mindfulness is not just paying attention. There's something else that we add to mindfulness. I, mean, I don't know if it's, we call it ethics, but something else that added to mindfulness that lends itself to do to the Los Altos way, 
rather than the chaotic way that's, you know, just forcing one's own way. And what is that other thing? Yes. Non-judgment. Non-judgment. Maybe. Let's see. I'm seeing the uh, seeing suffering, um, and um, you know, on all various levels of suffering, even very subtle suffering, and 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 seeing the pain of the pain of of, of grasping actions and um, thoughts and. And, and developing a real value for peace. So, so seeing the, the pain of one's own grasping, one's grasping to get ahead and force one's way in, it's painful for the person who's driving that way, and they're suffering, it's perpetuating suffering all around. Everyone's kind of hot-headed then. Something like that, something like and that. And seeing peace, the, seeing, peace. Se- seeing the value. So, you know, really wanting the, the bigness of peace rather than the smallness of those grasping. Great. Um, Tantalizations. So, 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 so that's great. I appreciate that a lot. And but, what it, is there something about mindfulness, a thing we call mindfulness, that's distinct from attention? Both drivings need a lot of attention. But what does mindfulness bring that just attention wouldn't necessarily bring? Well, that's what I was saying about peace. I think mindfulness sees the background, mm-hmm. so not just the foreground. But so there's a reference point of peace. Great. Okay. The thing that occurs to me is that it allows me to notice the other. Uh, In a different way, I'm sure the other, the fast drivers are forcing women have to notice other, others, but in a different way? Yeah. Um, it's more, uh, 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 maybe it's like a Martin Buber thing, a me, it, uh-huh. or me and you. Uh-huh. So the other becomes like me. So there's something Another about mind, something about mindfulness that lends itself to an I-thou kind of relationship. Yes, I and, and what is it about mindfulness that allows for that? Um, I think it allows me to actually feel what I feel, which is that I feel the the experience of the other person. Mm. And and uh, great. So mindfulness. And why, but why does mindfulness allow you to feel the other person? That the attention in the chaotic driving situation wouldn't. Something about the slowing down. The slowing down. The deepening and the slowing. Great. Okay, thank you. In in the back, David, right behind you. I think in mindfulness, you are aware um, that you're in a different circumstance. To be aware of how it goes where you are and to accept that. And in a crowded um, Indian uh, situation, you're aware you're in a crowded, and this is how it goes, and to relax and go with the flow of that. So in so in India, there's a different. You're, you're part of the part of what mindfulness allows you to do is to harmonize with the context, the situation. Indeed. <clears throat> Indeed, and uh, so maybe someone who's uh, if the Buddha was driving in Los Altos, he would stop at the stop sign. But if the Buddha was driving in India, <clears throat> he might not. <clears throat> if he did, he would never get anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I've nowhere to get. I've known, 
I've known people who've stood on the sidewalk in places like that, waiting for the traffic to get quiet so they could cross. (laughs) You have to learn the art of crossing anyway, even though the cars are speeding. So anybody else about what these conversations were like for you? Um, This may not be surprising, but in our group, because we were all women, both groups, um, the issue of anger came up a lot, and how do you behave ethically and, um, and stand your ground when you need to. Great. And why, and why because of women? Oh, I think we were all relating to the cultural messages that we get about what it's like to be a woman and to be angry and to be, express your anger. You know, women are not supposed to. Right, we can rearrange men's anatomy with our words. I mean, we get all sorts of things that happen to us okay. when we're angry. Thank you. One of the things that came up for me... Yes. One of the things that came up for me in this, can you hear me? Is um, how mindfulness relates to... Um, ethics in terms of regard for consequences. So seeing um, how what I might do impacts another person relates um, in real life, just how how seeing the way I'm paying attention might shift something in the body or the mind on the cushion. There's wisdom with what you say, but partly to, you know, make a point, not necessarily for you. I thought mindfulness was just about being in the present moment. So consequences are in the future, so... I'm not supposed to be future thinking when I'm mindful. Please, define it. <laughs> I'm not sure I can define it to your satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> it is being aware of what is happening while it is happening in a non-judgmental way, to quote John Kabat-Zinn. Yeah. But I believe that mindfulness is more than that, that it involves um, an activity more closely related to recollection. Uh-huh that um, has embedded in it a kind of a sense of um, the nature of our relationship to what is happening, Uh and that in um, spiritual practice there can be an almost a morality embedded in that process. Is what is happening benefiting, or is it harming? So there's a a consideration that's of evaluation of a situation that for you is closely connected to mindfulness, is part of mindfulness. And that would entail also then being some, something aware of the consequences of the actions, which is future thinking. Except that it might not be thinking. It might just be a visceral observation in the moment. Yeah. A, a sense, an intuitive a sense, sense oh, rather see, than analysis. Oh, I see. Okay. <clears throat> so, I have the mic. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, no hands. Um, Sally in our group, uh, and I think this connects a little bit, um, brought up this experience of the felt. um, If we're mindful, if we're aware of the body, if we connect with our body, and then sometimes people can distinguish emotions that come out of the body or connected, can move back and forth between body and emotion, then oftentimes... uh, we'll know something's amiss by something in the body. So 
I asked her to define, well, where in your body? And she described this sort of flywheel spinning sensation that's when it's harmoniously spinning, there's, she, she knows when it's not right because it'll start to it'll go out of balance and maybe it'll be out of sync and it'll start to spin. And she'll know she's at a point where that mindfulness tells her in the body, in that sense, okay, I'm about to do something that might not be ethical or might not be supportive. So connecting our ethics in the body, you know, that's how I see, you know, why she described it, is that mindfulness and the ethics are connected. And we can experience that in, if we use that awareness of our body and emotion and thoughts and all the other things that sort of unfold through that expression. So... I think maybe that's what Don's pointing to as well, and I think that's how there's a very intimate relationship between sati, mindfulness, establishing all of that, that awareness in our body. So if we if we allow ourselves to feel that, then we might be able to sort of become make a choice at that point, either to let go of something or or know there'll be consequences in a way. Nice, that's nice. So this morning I tried to uh, refer to the breathing as a reference like that, but there's a lot more other areas in the body, in the mind, the heart, that can be referenced for that kind of understanding. Thank you. So, um, I'm very interested in this um, example of being in India and wanting to cross the street and um, so I want, there's somewhere I need to go. I want to go there mindfully. And there are all these cars and people rushing around. <clears throat> so um, in order to do it mindfully, um, I have to not be attached to the outcome. But I still have a goal where, where I want to go. So I need, in order to do that and cause the least amount of harm, I have to be aware of myself, where I am. I have to see, <clears throat> as like the big view of all the cars and what's going on. I have to be very attentive. I have to uh, catch that moment of an opening where I can go. And um, so I'm aware of myself. I'm aware of not being hooked with anger, aggression, or impatience, or frustration. And um, I'm also reminded of that Zen story where the man um, was with a companion and carried the beautiful girl across the river. And then his companion later on said, you shouldn't have picked up that beautiful girl. And, and so he says, to his companion, well, I put her down a long time ago. I'm sorry you're still carrying her. <laughs> yes, thank you. There's a mic here. I have a question about what Richard was talking about, the indicators. Seems like uh, those indicators might be delusional. Uh, say more. What you're thinking about? Uh, 
It feels like there's something deeper than those indicators that is somewhat organic that arises to inform maybe an ethical mindfulness. So if, they, if you're talking about the indicators being the inner physical sens- sensations, experience, can they be delusional? I, what comes to mind is that sometimes there are experiences of, of um, fear which might have a biological source or even maybe even anger or irritation that might have a biological source. You know, someone might have too much coffee and some people that tips the balance towards being anxious. Someone else might tip the balance towards being kind of angry. And the person knows from, from bitter experience that uh, that particular kind of fear is delusional. It's better not to act on it. There's, nothing, there's no danger around. It's time to be really careful. You know, not... And so not all physical sensations are... You know, the way we interpret them, we might interpret them one way, you know, inter- or interpret our situation through the filter of that emotional state, mm-hmm. but it might not be accurate. Is that what you mean, kind of? Or? Yeah, it is. It's uh, kind of discerning as you go um, those indicators. Yeah, so it might be then important to distinguish between emotions that we feel inside and sensations. Because emotions are complicated phenomena that might come with a lot of different evaluations, and some of them might be delusionary. And, um, and you know, so, but the, um, uh, but sensations maybe are, are more basic. So, I mean, the sensation of tension, for example, are, is, you can't argue with tension, I and mean, it's there. <laughs> you, know, you feel tense. And is it delusionary? The tension is not delusion. But there might be that the, uh, the thoughts that produce attention might be delusional. But attention is, um, is, is real in a certain way. And th- that's an t- uh, indicator, a teacher, that something needs attention. And then you use your mindfulness or wisdom to discern what needs attention. It might be your body. It might be some, some, th- uh, some thoughts you have. So I wonder, I wonder Ms. I, that maybe uh, sensations are more reliable as a support than emotions. And that's not always, not, some people are very uh, committed to their emotions, as if their emotions are, you know, provide the accurate assessment of what's going on. But I, but I don't know if that's always true. Not to complicate the situation, but um, I'm sort of aware that sensation can be not an entirely accurate barometer as well because um, people can have uh, nervous system effects that are stuck from prior trauma that give them a reading of danger when there's no danger. Um, So I'm seeing the ethics and mindfulness process as a deepening of healing. Mm. And the more deep the healing goes, the more sensitive the mindfulness can be. More reliable it can be. More reliable and more connected. Mm. And then the sense of ethics seems to become more subtle as well. Mm. Beautiful. Well said. Thank you. Okay, so I want to stop so we can stop for lunch. Um... So the, there's a little uh, teaching, the very pithy kind of nice little teaching, and that 
um, ethics and wisdom go hand in hand. Just like you need, uh, you know, for the, uh, two hands to wash your hands. It's kind of hard to wash one hand. I guess it can be done with your fingers, but you don't get everywhere. Um, but with two hands, you can get your both sides of your hands. And so in the same way you need two hands to wash your hands, uh, you need uh, ethics and wisdom side by side together, working together. That ethics without wisdom, you don't really get clean. But um, wisdom without ethics, you don't get clean. So working those together. And as Don pointed out, I think he was trying to suggest this, that uh, mindfulness is more than just uh, attention. It comes along close together or connected to it is some certain kind of wisdom, some kind of uh, ability to evaluate wisely what the situation is. And the tradition itself kind of uh, uh, connects wisdom and mindfulness very closely together. It doesn't say they're the same, but, but they're not so far apart. So, um, so there is uh, these two handouts here that if you can be, be here all day, you can pick them up at the end, or you can pick them up at lunch. We'll take an hour for lunch. We'll start again at 1.15. Uh, people who have been here before know how to do things here. We bring tables out and chair. You can take chairs out in the parking lot, tables out in the parking lot if you want, the folding tables or out in the outer hall. And um, there's a microwave and you can heat up food if you want. And then uh, near the end of that time, some people need to help with the cleanup. Just sweeping the floor, people have eaten in here and dishes and things that people have used. Don is the manager for today, so if you have any questions about lunchtime or anything about the building or something, you can check in with Don. And, um, and then I, what I thought was, you know, the, the last session of the afternoon that we would pick up some uh, larger, more social issue around uh, not killing. We'll look at not killing the first of the precepts in the afternoon. And, um, and so if you have your favorite one or one that you would like to offer your vote to what we address here today, you're welcome to tell me at lunchtime, and I'll consider that when I decide which one we'll look at. Okay? <laughs>